Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to talk about Blink as an archetype in Double Masters. So Double Masters is a little bit tricky archetypes-wise because there are so many viable archetypes, because you can play two colors or three colors or more than three colors, and most of the time you're going to play three colors and all of the three color groups are supported so there are a lot of different ways that you can draft the set. Uh, but I think that Blink as a strategy has ways that you can do it in a lot of different color combinations and that uh, it's very fundamentally strong regardless and drafted very similarly. So I, I think that um, my current approach to drafting Double Masters is very much based around kind of this core philosophy about Blink. And so I wanted to talk about how that works, why I'm drafting around it, what you want to prioritize, and uh, how I see Blink as an archetype. So fundamentally, I think most games of Double Masters are relatively grindy. There are aggressive decks that uh, are strong and punish slow mana bases, but they are not the majority of decks. And there are pretty good answers to them. Uh, there's just a lot of very strong, efficient removal in the format. And while the good aggressive decks exist and have counterplay to that, most of the time, the slower decks, I think just density of cards are such that like your average game and average opponent uh, is going to be more likely to be kind of in the like values kind of grindy space than like an aggressive matchup. And I also think that the like slower decks have the tools not to be well positioned against the aggressive decks. So I like to approach the format from trying to be more of a mid-range deck. And uh, while I want to have tools to not get run over, I'm kind of expecting that the matchup's going to be a little bit more mid-rangey. So because there's a lot of good removal I think that most of the time, the games are about value. And I think that the best and easiest sources of value in the format are on creatures with under the battlefield abilities. The key relevant commons for this claim and this strategy are Militia Bugler, um, the two minutes, two, three, that finds another uh, two or less power creature from the top four cards you library and puts it in your hand. Vigilance, uh, two and white. Aether Snipe, the Evoke 4-4 that bounces something when you, pl when you play it. Seeker Squire, the one and a black one to explore. Vampire Sovereign, the three black black, 3-4 uh, flyer that drains your opponent for three when you play it. Annoyed Altasaur, the seven mana Cascade Dinosaur. Elvish Rejuvenator, the one one that finds a land. Uh, Webweaver Changeling, the 3-5 Reach Changeling that gains 5 life if you have 3 creatures in your graveyard. Bloodwater Entity, the blue-red flying 2-2 uh, prowess 
that puts an instant or sorcery from your graveyard on top of your uh, deck when you play it, and Coiling Oracle, uh, the one one that draws a card and maybe puts land into play. Key Uncommons, Flicker Wisp, the three one flyer that flickers something when it enters Wall of Omens, the O four that draws a card wall for one and a white. Mole Drifter, the five mana two two evoke draw two cards. Skin Render, the black black two three three that puts three minus one minus one counters on something. Eternal Witness, one green green, two one, uh, ETB, return something from your graveyard to your hand. Psychic Symbiont, the six mana, three three flyer, that when it enters, you draw a card and your opponent discards. Bloodbraid Elf, three two, Haste Cascade for four in red green. Bear's Companion, five mana Teamer, two two, that makes a four four when it enters the battlefield. Sultai Soothsayer, five mana Sultai, two five, that looks at four cards and puts one of them in your hand and the others in your graveyard when you play it. All of those cards are very good. Uh, the uncommons are basically all appreciably better than the commons. The uncommons are all really impactful and really good to blink. The cascade cards, I guess, are not good to blink. They're just like relevant value creatures to consider in terms of the format being about value creatures, not so much about utility of blink. So, given that there are all of these good creatures to blink, I am currently of the belief that Settle Beyond Reality is the strongest common in the set. I don't think it's very close. I think Settle Beyond Reality is the strongest common in the set by a lot. And I think that it's not the highest drafted common in the set and that you should be drafting around being able to play Settle Beyond Realities that you see and maximizing its strength. Further, I think the combination of Eternal Witness and Settle Beyond Reality is so strong that the existence of that combo is enough that I'm fairly confident Eternal Witness is the best uncommon in the set just because it makes that combo possible. I think, I mean, the floor on Eternal Witness is very high. Eternal Witness is a great card, but then Eternal Witness Settle uh, being just exile of your opponent's creatures is really, 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 really good. And then both cards are independently strong and uh, you can, you know, draw them in either order. You don't need to, like, keep Eternal Witness on the battlefield to... Well, I mean, you do need to keep Eternal Witness on the battlefield, but you don't need to, like... It's it's relatively hard to break up the combo, relatively easy to reassemble the combo. Um, like, there are other ways to, like, get Eternal Witness back from your graveyard to reestablish the combo if, like, your opponent does kill your Eternal Witness. I think that it that's just, like, a really, really good... Um, kind of like late game plan. So I I don't like to pass either of those cards. For the most part, I'm looking to play three colors. Uh, I don't have like an exact three colors. Obviously, I want one of them to be white so that I can cast Settle Beyond Reality. But you can potentially play, you know, three color Sultai or whatever, Sultai or Teamer, and then splash like a couple of Settle Beyond Realities and no other white cards. And that's how you would like use it with like Bear's Companion or Sultai Soothsayer. And I think it's like pretty reasonable to do that. That you do need to like work reasonably hard to make your mana work if that's your plan. Easier if you can be white and two other colors. So I'm kind of like most looking to be white, least looking to be red, because red contributes the least to this like blank strategy. And then I think green and blue are slightly more likely than black, but really like any three of the non-red colors is like a space that I'm pretty happy with as far as like being this blank archetype where like if I'm Sultai, then arguably maybe I'm not blink. Maybe I'm just like Sultai value creatures and but also maybe I'm like 
also splashing for like assembling stuff. I think, you know, the easiest and best way to like get all of the synergies working the way they're supposed to is Bant, but you don't have to be specifically Bant to still kind of like approach all of this in that way and prioritize these same cards. I didn't mention Relief Captain or Sensor Splicer among the key commons. They are conveniently white and have relatively impactful into the battlefield abilities, but I think the rate is just not that impressive. I think the cards are a little bit weaker than the other value cards, and there are enough alternatives that I prefer not to like try to play those. If you end up short on stuff you want to blink and long on ways to blink, they're like fine. I also didn't mention the other blink enablers like the Smuggler and Miss Meadow Witch. Those cards are really strong if you have a bunch of blink stuff. Um, they're relatively easy to kill, so I don't prioritize them like as highly as just like a good enters the battlefield ability creature. But they like if you're if you get one of them with like any good value creature and your opponent can't break that up, then it's a really strong engine. In general, my pick order here is basically like busted rares over uncommon value creatures, over subtle beyond reality, over bounce lands, over common value creatures, over good removal, over cryptic spires, over like other creatures and card draw and filler stuff. That's a very broad, blunt way of looking at it. And obviously there's like a spectrum of quality of rares and quality of uncommon value creatures and sometimes the rare is going to be better sometimes the uncommon value creature is going to be better depending on exactly which ones you're comparing but i think that if you like broadly follow bomb rares uncommon value creatures settle on color double on color bounce lands common value creatures good removal cryptic spires filler in that order you're going to be like basically on the right track for making this kind of deck work as with my discussion about Mykonid in Baldur's Gate, this is a very broad, very open-ended archetype. So I'm kind of uh, forced to handle things in like pretty broad strokes. But I think that this is a format that has kind of a lot of interchangeable pieces and rewards uh, a lot of like flexibility while having kind of a coherent overall strategic approach. So I think that like more specificity than this is both difficult and not very useful. It's all kind of like blunt, but similarly here, you know, my big takeaway, this is actually kind of like uh, more fundamental. Like in Baldur's Gate, I think Mykonid is the most important uh, common in green and like the backbone of green. Whereas Settle Beyond Reality is not merely the backbone of white. I think it's just the best common and the best common in a pretty important way where you want to like, because it's kind of easier to splash and because it's a five mana single pip card, um, you can splash it in kind of like weird spots. And so I think that like valuing it similarly to the way that I do really informs and informs just like my strategy to the draft and evaluation of like all of the other cards in a way that I think is like pretty defining. Like it is my approach to the format feels appreciably different having switched to prioritizing um, settle and flicker stuff versus just prioritizing anything other than that. 
I've had much better results since making this change and highly recommend it. So uh, that's that's kind of my thesis lecture, whatever here. And I'm going to turn it over to questions from chat as I'm now slightly more back in the uh, production process that I've uh, worked out for this podcast. Going to take a moment here while I wait for questions from chat to thank my newest patrons over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So Anga, John, and John, thank you very much for the support. Uh, for anyone else who is um, looking to support the podcast, get some features, get a little public thank you, etc., please check that out as I get back into the swing of this podcast. So chat, anything? What's important in the mirror? Okay. I don't know that I've played something that I would... So obviously, like, there are a lot of value creatures in the format, and so I play against, like, decks that have value creatures. But I don't feel like a lot of my opponents are approaching things quite the same way. I feel like I mostly play against, like, fast decks and mid-range decks, and I play against fewer decks that are, like, really kind of dedicated to, like, more of, like, an engine deck or dedicated to, like, value all the way down rather than just, like, I don't know, more arbitrary cards. I think that as far as, like, I think that as far as the mirror just being, like, mid-range decks and what matters there, I think getting ahead on cards and sticking something, like, going over the top. So, like, if you can stick Altasaur or whatever and it's bigger than your opponent's stuff and you can kill them with it, then that is going to win the game. But part of why Settle is so good is that it makes it very hard for... Like, there are a lot of really powerful cards, and if you just exile them in a way that is, like, value positive, then it's easier to make the game continue to be about card advantage and card count rather than about like large objects and as long as all of your cards are dedicated to building card advantage and you can make the you can stop your opponent from making it about basically like card quality as an attribute that's distinct from card advantage and not about rate so like most of the time card quality is a function of rate because most of the time um, what matters is getting a lot of value for your mana. Once you've established that you're playing a really grindy game that's not like about tempo and is about like the total power of your cards, then there becomes another way of evaluating card quality, which is about impact. And some games of Double Masters are basically about who has the most impactful card. Like sometimes someone sticks like a dragon, like a like a Teneb type dragon um, where it's like, well, I played this thing, my opponent couldn't answer it and it dominated the game and I won. And like those games are basically about card quality. As long as that card is unanswered, you're going to win the game. By prioritizing versatile, powerful answers, you make sure that your opponent doesn't win the game off of a single high impact card. As long as you can make sure that your opponent's card quality 
in terms of like total amount of impact doesn't trump your plan of card advantage, then you can win with numerical card advantage over potentially strong individual cards by just killing those cards while drawing cards, which is fundamentally what like settle plus value creatures is trying to do is have an engine that's uncontestable in terms of generating card advantage. And so my approach to the mirror is, well, mirror being other decks that are trying not to make the game about tempo um, is uh, to force the game to be about quantity and having a way to trump the quantity game. I'm not sure to what extent that addresses it as a mirror, but I'd say that's like philosophically how I'm approaching mid-range in the format. Is there such a thing as too grindy? What's the minimum amount of late game threats? So the ways that you can be too grindy are either not having a way to close a game such that you deck yourself, or not having enough things to impact the board such that you get run over. And my approach to avoiding that problem is to not prioritize cards like Forbidden Alchemy and Deep Analysis that grind by drawing cards and instead to prioritize creatures with Enter the Battlefield abilities such that I'm playing to the board and as long as I've answered my opponent's stuff, I can attack them with whatever bodies I happen to have and I'm less likely to get run over because the bodies that are incidentally being played can trade with my opponent's bodies when my opponent is aggressive. So I think that the easy way to be too grindy is to insufficiently prioritize material advantage in terms of like board presence uh, by over-prioritizing like actual card draw. Um, and while there are efficient card draw spells plus efficient removal, and that's like generally a pretty good plan, I think that it doesn't line... I think that like trying to play a bunch of deep analysis and agony warps lines up really poorly against an opponent who's just playing a bunch of militia buglers. So I prefer to be in as much on the bugler side of that uh, like dynamic as possible. Yeah, uh, make sure that your card advantage is in the form of like creatures rather than card draw spells is the way to like minimize the risk of being too grindy. As far as like minimum amount of late game threats, that I don't know if there's a raw number there because like, you know, Eternal Witness, for example, basically counts as late game threat in terms of like, have I hit a necessary number to be able to end the game? Yeah, I don't, it, the counts on that kind of stuff is always weird. It's like the like, you know, what's the minimum creature count where it's like, well, it kind of depends on like whether you can just like win in some way other than creatures. Like, are you casting a villainous wealth at some point? And like, how sticky are your creatures and how much recursion do you have and stuff like that? So I don't think I want to try to give like a number like you need five late game threats or whatever. I've seen some games where an opponent tried to go under your value and it looked like a total mismatch. Is there a counter in this format? Um, is there like a rock, paper, scissors more simply? Uh, and then another question that's very similar. What's the best way to beat this archetype? 
when I started drafting this format, I was struggling to trophy. I uh, was going 2-1 very consistently, and I would play like, you know, a Grixis control deck that had a bunch of like efficient removal and some card draw, and it would line up well against like the Boros Aggro decks, but poorly against like the um, big green Altasaur decks because my small removal wouldn't be able to answer their big threats and their green cards would give enough card advantage that I would just like end up falling behind. I would end up finding mismatches and feel like it was hard to like cover all of the possible opponents I would run into. Since switching my approach and like basically since realizing that Settle Beyond Reality is the best common, I don't think I've lost a match. I'm sure that there is like an archetype that's more likely to beat this than another archetype. And I'm sure that like I will lose a match eventually if I play this. But I haven't drafted the format enough and like forced this long enough to have a great sense of like what its exact shortcomings are. And I, I really am not trying to say this is unbeatable, just follow this and you'll win all your matches, because like obviously your opponent might also be listening to this. And also it's just not true. Like, you know, sometimes you're gonna play against like some bomb that beats you, uh, and you know, sometimes like an aggro deck will have a great draw or whatever. As far as just like, yeah, this is like good against these archetypes and bad against this one archetype. The way that like I think Grixis control fundamentally has a hole against big green. I don't know the hole in this strategy. I think it's just fundamentally very sound. I think that it plays the best cards and uses them synergistically. And I think that like, as long as you can get some of the good value uncommons, everything kind of just like flows pretty easily from there. I think that where you're going to struggle is if you just never see any of like Wall of Omens, Moldrifter, Skin Render, Eternal Witness, Psychic Symbiont, like really specifically those. Like if you just don't see any of those cards, then the like power level of like your settles change a lot in power level depending on how good your average flicker is. And you know, if you routinely have like the best of those, then your settles are awesome and the game's really easy. But if you don't have any of like the premium stuff and you're just flickering Elvish Rejuvenators or Aether Snipes or something, it's nowhere near as strong. Similarly, sometimes you just won't see settle and then you're still like fundamentally a lot like, you know, it's not like the value creatures are only good if you can flicker them. They're good the first time you catch them also. You know, you, you won't always see the pieces for this. And there are other strong cards in the format. And so, like, I think that it is not even necessarily correct to draft this way every time. If you see just, like, a really good card for a different plan, then, you know, you might want to pivot. You're, you might want to, like, do that instead. You might want to try to do some kind of hybrid thing. But I've been very happy when I've been able to be here, and I've been able to be here pretty consistently. How many people per table can the archetype support? 
again, the archetype is more of like a broad philosophy rather because like, you know, you could have like one person who's Bant and one person who's like, I mean, Mardu technically, and like they're not really competing with each other, except they both want like exactly settle or whatever. You know, maybe the Bant person doesn't end up with settles, but they end up with some blinks or something. I, I mean, I, I also just don't know um, because I'm playing uh, mostly on Magic Online where I'm not playing in pod. So I don't really know what the other people at my table were drafting. Um, it's it's very hard to know just like what even counts as someone competing in my archetype and what happens if a lot of people are trying to do it. So I, I don't really know the answer to how many per table it can support. How many settles would you run at most in this archetype? Well, I had a deck with four of them and it was awesome. I was really happy to draw them. The games where I drew all four were great. So I know that I am very happy to play four and it certainly doesn't feel like a fifth would have been bad. I do think that you you know need to make sure that your curve makes sense and you need to make sure that you have like go to early blockers and stuff like that. But it's not hard to imagine that I would like rather have another settle than another like any other expensive card, especially if my deck had like two eternal witnesses. I'm sure there are points where like your the stuff that you're flickering is like not that great, such that you might prefer some other expensive card over a settle, but I haven't had an experience where I felt like I had too many of them and it doesn't feel super likely that I'm going to have a problem of having too many of them if I draft them too highly or something. Are there particularly good pivots for this strategy if you're not seeing settles? Yeah, just pivot into the stuff you have. <laughs> like, um, set, That's kind of the great thing about it is like, you know, where I was just talking about like uh, how the other green cards in Baldur's Gate fundamentally don't work if you don't have Myconids because you need Myconid to like ramp you and stabilize so that you can cast the expensive green cards. It's the exact opposite situation here. All of the like cards that make your settles good are good, cheap cards that you want to play anyway. So if you don't have settles, just play the cards that you were drafting that are good by themselves anyway. I had a deck that didn't get settle that was like a Panharmonicon blink deck. And I was worried about the fact that I didn't have settle. And I ended up doing um, some pretty good things with like Aether sniping my own value creatures with Panharmonicon in play. Incidentally, Panharmonicon Aether snipe is like capsized with buyback uh, for three mana, but at sorcery speed and can't bounce lands. But I didn't even ever end up doing exactly that. I would say, like, you know, you can still use, like, Aether Snipe and Momentary Blink as replacement ways to get extra value out of your ETBs. But you don't even need to do that because, like, the opportunity cost on these ETBs is very low. They're just good cards. And so the pivot is just, like, find other removal, find other powerful cards, like other high impact cards, and play a normal game that has some value cards in it and be happy about it. So that's that's part of why it feels so safe to draft this way, is like the core philosophy here is just, this is a format with good removal, and so creatures that give you their value up front 
are better than creatures that need to stay alive. Like Rafik of the Many is a card that I think is not very impressive in this format because it's so easy to kill and it's only good if it lives. Whereas like, you know, Coiling Oracle is just like you played it and you generated some value and it doesn't really matter what happens from there. You're just like happy. And so you just take all these cards that are just kind of like fundamentally good and then you take cards that make them even better. And if you don't have the cards that make them even better, you still have a sound deck of cards that are fundamentally good. I think where you run into trouble is if you're like trying to draft around like relief captains and sensor splicers and these cards that are like only good if you are blinking them rather than cards that are just like a good rate by themselves and then it's you know extra good if you blink them. Um, and so that's why I think that you generally don't want to like prioritize those cards, the ones that are like inefficient on their own. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, these formats, uh, both Double Masters and Baldur's Gate, feel a little unusual. So my coverage of them is also a little bit unusual. I'm not sure exactly still where I'm going to go next. Hopefully I find some other things that are good and a little bit different. Um, but uh, we'll see what happens um, as far as how I figure out how to handle these um, this kind of weird time in uh, limited magic. Um, but thanks for tuning in, and I will be back later in the week for another episode. Have a good next few days until I'm back for more, and bye for now. <laughs>